Tonight's reading from the New Testament is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Will you please join me as we pray? Father, there are many things in that passage we just heard read that... Um, Make our hearts hungry to understand, hungry to experience. And your spirit has the ability to make this word life-changing. You only have that ability. So we pray that you would do that, that we would be able to put faith to what we hear. In Christ's name, amen. The late theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer, when he would tell his story, would often refer to um, a crisis of faith that he went through. And uh, it was so significant that it led him to question all the way back to very basic things like, does God exist and is Christianity true. This is how he describes it. 
I had become a Christian from agnosticism many years ago. After that, I had become a pastor for 10 years in the U.S. And then for several years, my wife Edith and I had been working in Europe. We were living in Switzerland at the time, and I told Edith that for the sake of honesty, I had to go all the way back to my agnosticism and think through the whole matter. I'm sure she prayed much for me in those days. I walked in the mountains when it was clear, and when it was rainy, I walked backward and forward in the hayloft of the old chalet uh, chalet in which we lived. I walked, prayed, and thought through what the scriptures taught, reviewing my own reasons for being a Christian. So you have to imagine, this had to be a pretty big trigger that caused him to go all the way back to his agnosticism, all the way back to wonder, is any of this true? And the trigger was that Schaefer looked at what Christians believed, and he looked at how they lived, and he saw the gap. It was that. He looked at the way Christians, what they believed and what they said they believed, and even what he believed, in the way he and they lived, and it drove him to the place of unbelief and doubt. Now, the good news is, is God rescued him at that point, and he was able to, in a sense, think his way back through the gospel. The book of James, which we're starting tonight, has a similar concern that runs underneath it. This idea of, if we believe this, how then do we evidence it in life? And James uh, basically turns up the magnifying on every area of life. It might be how we handle suffering, how we handle prosperity, what we, how we handle our words, how we handle our desires and ambitions. We'll see he runs through very, very practical things, but underneath he keeps driving at this question, does our life really prove belief there? Does it flow from it? And uh, for James, this was more than a theoretical question because he himself had dealt significantly with doubt. For everything we can tell, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And from everything we read in the Gospels, while Jesus was alive, James did not believe in him. He likely didn't respect him. It wasn't until after the death and the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus appearing to his brother James that he had a turning point. And he began to believe. But there was another side of James that I think plays into the particular message of this book. James's nickname in the early church was James the Just. Because he was known to be someone that cared so much for righteousness and justice. And so he as well is wrestling with this idea of what does faith have to do with that? Now we are in a city here where many, many people care about righteousness and justice. And many, many people have doubts, question belief. And James particularly 
was worried that there can be some that have knowledge and they really have deceived themselves because their knowledge has become alone their place of assurance. When we uh, teach the Introduction to Grace Downtown class, one of the things I do is I write on the board uh, mind, heart, and will. And say these are the three basic things that can pry as a person, make up a person. And all of us tend to sit in one or the other. We tend to lean toward one or the other. Some of us, it's our heart and emotions. Others of us, we go do, do, do. Others of us think. But even, I would say, church traditions fall that way. You could look at uh, the history of Christendom even today, and you could look at different denominations and go, yeah, you know, they're really good at doing stuff, or they're really much about the heart and experience. Well, the Reformed Presbyterian Church, you might guess, really sits a lot on the, the mind side. What we knowledge. Dan Doriani, who is a uh, New Testament scholar, he's actually uh, been in our community before and taught, he said, James is concerned about those who are strong in knowledge but weak in life. Strong in knowledge but weak in life. And it, it gets us to this question of, not only the potential hypocrisy that can happen, that you have to have your eye on, but also this disparity I see in my own life where I believe and I preach and I say these things, but when trial or anything comes into my life, this is how I live. This is how I react. Maybe you know something of that in your own life. And so James is bringing us into something an understanding, a wisdom that can help us. I uh, finally broke down a couple years ago and bought a life-proof case for my phone. Um, you know, I had dropped it too many times, and I consider myself a careful person. But, you know, they just fall. And in uh, one time, I, you know, uh, got my, this was back in the iPod days, remember those? But uh, I got the, uh, my, my uh, iPod wet, and it completely ruined it. And I was on YouTube listening to this 13-year-old kid tell me how to fix it. Uh, but, you know, I finally broke down and got the life. Now, here's about the life. Uh, I've got it right here in case you're interested. You know, there it is. So I'm going to throw it. No, I'm not going to do that. Because that would be too provocative for a Presbyterian minister to do. No. So I want you to conceptualize in your mind what it might be if I threw it. Um, anyway, but you know, even if you have a great case like this, <clears throat> you know, it doesn't stop it from being dropped and feeling the push or being jarred, but it does stop it from getting shattered. And uh, I would be lying to you if I was going to tell you that James is going to deliver us something whereby you will not be jarred and you will not feel the ground but I do believe we can be in a place where our faith does not shatter. Also a place where we can be joyful where he started. He teaches us that while we don't rejoice in trials and hardships, and I gave you a little reflection quote that makes that clear, we don't rejoice in the disease. We don't rejoice in the oppression that causes the poverty. 
But rather, he's talking about there's a way, though, to actually maintain your joy. And it begins with thinking a bit about the promises and the outcome of God's wisdom. So let's look at that together. First of all, the promise of God. When I was uh, single and life was hard, I would often think um, if, I would, if I could get married, life wouldn't be so hard. And then when Meg and I were married and we were waiting uh, to get pregnant and have kids, I thought, you know, uh, if we could just get pregnant, life wouldn't be so hard. And then we had kids. And we had kids, and I remember thinking, if they could just tie their shoes, you know, or if they could just get their shoes, life wouldn't be so hard. And then it's, you know, if they, if they could just get into this college, if we could just nail that down, life wouldn't be so hard, right? And it just keeps going on. So uh, racially, now I fix my mind on this thing, retirement. You know, I'm sure, you know, there's, I'm going to hit, I think there's this age that you pass somewhere, I don't know what it is, and heaven just decides you've had enough and life's easy now. The problem is, is I know these wonderful saints that are older than me, that's not the case. You know, I'm waiting for this time where heaven sends me the gold watch and says, you're done. And I figured out when that is. It's death. That's when you get the gold watch, right? What I'm saying is this. Uh, James first tries to get it to our minds that if you're going to have wisdom, you must understand that the world is a constant place of trouble. Now, that is hard for a certain demographic to receive. I think it's not the most optimistic message if you've been raised in American culture. Uh, if you're someone that has had sort of, uh, I would say, a uh, pr- pretty much charmed life, that's going to be hard to hear. If you're someone that's enjoyed a lot of power in our culture, like a majority culture white middle-aged guy, hint, Right? There's lots of different ways that we can hear that and go, well, I don't really believe that. But in case you're doubting, Jesus said it. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. But that's not all he says, right? If that were the case, we'd, you know, we would be the church of, we would be the church of the Charlie Brown. You know, the church of the Eeyore. Eeyore. You know, just always down. He says, not just in this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen for that. He also says, I want my joy to be in you. So this gives us hope. And this is what James says with the promise. And this is really packed with some, some things that I think help us. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Um, When you and I face trial and difficulty, the hardest thing is not the physical pain or the difficulty of the circumstance. The hardest part is the head game. The hardest part is the mental and the emotional struggle that we go through. That's what makes it difficult. We're confused. God, have you forgotten me? Are you displeased? Or we begin to think about God's character. He just seems very capricious. Like, this person gets this life, this person gets that life. 
God, you're stingy. God, you're not dependable. God, you're mean. These are the things that fill our heads as we struggle. Think if we're honest. And so James tells us the thing we most need in trial is heavenly perspective. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, What does the parent in the doctor's office, when the child's about to get a shot, what do they have that the child doesn't have? What does the coach have, have that the players who are sweating it out, running around, don't have? What does the teacher have that those that are taking the finals don't have? They have perspective. They're able to look at the hardship and go, I can tell you where this is leading. And this is what James says you and I need. We need perspective on a few things. And he not only says we need to pray for it, he gives us a little taste of it. One, we need perspective just on the character of God. That's the most difficult thing in trials. He talks of, he says, I I want you to remember that God is the father of lights. There's no shadow in it. There's no darkness. And that he is the giver of good gifts. And verse 5 literally reads, ask the giving God. This is his name, the giving God. That's how desirous he is to give to us in the time of trial. The same Lord that you've known in the seasons of plenty is there in the season of one. He's the same God. He hasn't changed. But here's the test. You know, as I was telling you about all the things I'd look to to see if life was easier, um, you know, if, if you are looking to determine whether God is good and is the Father of lights, if you are looking to the things like the marriage, the kid, dot, 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 it'll never be answered. Because it wasn't just, Lord, will you give us a kid? It was, Lord, will you give us a healthy kid? Nothing wrong with that, right? Good prayer. Will you give us a healthy kid? Then it was, Lord, Lord will you give us a, a, a stable kid, a kid that, will you give us a successful kid? Lord, will you, you see where I'm going. It's not just give me this job. Lord, will you, it's just on and on and on. You will never determine whether or not God is good because it just never ends. In the gospel, we're told that the way it gets settled in our hearts is we finally see and understand that he really did give his son for me. That God really did give the person of Christ to me. And he walked the earth and his life was given for me. That's when it starts to settle the question. We need that sort of wisdom. And he also says that God gives freely to all without reproach. And what that means is he doesn't play favorites and he doesn't give with condition. You know, are, are you familiar with the old um, fable, Rumpelstiltskin? Right? Rumpelstiltskin. I don't know, do they still read that in school, Rumpelstiltskin? Have you kids ever read the story of Rumpelstiltskin? No? It's a world coming to, I don't know. <laughs> He's such, you know, I love these old, uh, they're very un-Disney-esque, right? The, the plots of these things because they, I know there's conflict. That's, see, I wish I could take that back because I am not against Disney. And if you work for Disney or your family's Disney, there's a lot of great Disney movies I like. My point is this, 
that, you know, a lot of those old ones, they've got a grotesque side to them, like a side that unnerves you. But, you know, what happens, right, is you've got this young gal that's got a spin gold, and she can't do it, and this little man shows up, Rumpelstiltskin. And he says, I'll spin the gold, but this is always his refrain. What will you give me in return? He's always thinking one step ahead of you. He meets you in that place of desperation when you have to ask for it. And he goes, what will you give me? Is that ring? Is it your firstborn? Literally, he asked for that. This is the beauty of God. When we're desperate, he doesn't say that. He's going, what will you give me? He gives freely to us. So wisdom about his character is really important. And wisdom to distinguish between trials and temptations. You know, the same Greek word is used, but in verse 12, it means test. And in verse 13, it means temptation. And that's important to see because while God permits tests, he does not cause temptation. I mean, think about, again, when your head is in the battle. When you and I are in the fight, if you've been praying for something a long time, if you are going through a trial right now, you know what it's like when you get down there. It's not only questioning God's character, but you're starting to say, are you setting me up? You know? I mean, this is just too hard. You're tempting me, God. So James comes out and says, listen... You know, Jesus, God sent Jesus into the wilderness so he would be tested, but the devil's the one that tempted him. And the difference between a test and a temptation is the response. It's how we respond. God gives the tests that we might succeed. I mean, what teacher? You'd have to be a pretty mean teacher. Well, maybe... I don't mean to say that if you've done this before, but you'd have to be a pretty, pretty mean teacher if you gave tests to students so they would fail. Right? If that was your whole goal in teaching to say, I just want them to fail. Well, let's think of God at least as well as we think of ourselves. He doesn't give the test so that you and I would flop and fail. But we are tempted. He gives this illustration saying that when our temptations meet our selfish desires, a birth happens. And that birth is called sin. And if it keeps going, it grows up into death. And by death, he doesn't just mean physical death. He's talking about eternal death, judgment, punishment. And so there are these two paths. Endurance leading to life or selfishness leading to death. And it's how we respond. And James then says, I want you to respond with faith. And he's pretty bold about that. You know, the thing about it, James doesn't make faith so complicated. And he doesn't glorify doubt. We live in an age that glorifies doubt. You know, doubt is uh, considered to be noble. It's considered to be humble, to always be seeking but never finding. Now, we believe that in our heads, but in real life, it's not that so easy. If, you know, if uh, someone walked in and said, you know, I'm really doubting whether or not I want to be a faithful husband. You know, I'm really doubting right now whether or not I want to trade the secrets of this company with another one. I'm really doubting. That sort of doubting ain't so good, right? There's a moral side to doubting. And James is getting at that. He's saying, listen, when you and I in trial are not trusting in God, you realize you're trusting in something. You're trusting in your own wisdom. You're trusting in your... 
So he's asking us to shift that place of uh, trust and realize, thirdly, that wisdom of God will lead you to true deliverance. He mentions this idea of the rich and them fading away. But really, as I mentioned last week when I said that, you know, psychologists will say that people that hoard, that keep possessions, one of the reasons they do it is they think it will insulate them from danger. And so he's saying, whatever you're trusting in, whereby you think it's going to insulate you from the bad stuff. For instance, if I can just eat well and stay in shape, I won't get cancer. If I can just work really hard, harder than everybody else, my boss will like me and I'll never get laid off and nothing will go wrong with my career. All these things that you and I do thinking that will stop the trouble. I can get myself into a world where there won't be trouble. But God instead, instead the Lord leads us to a place of deliverance, true deliverance, that's in him, in his wisdom, in his character. And then that wisdom leads us to see an outcome. I mentioned earlier... When you and I can look ahead and see where the thing's going to end, I don't know if you've ever, um, if you like to watch videos of your team winning again. All right? Does anybody, well, maybe you don't want to show you. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Right? You know, I mean, and for me, who my, my, uh, anyway, both teams I was following lost or out of the, uh, out of the Stanley Cup. And, um, you know, Hockey is such a nervous sport to watch. It's not enjoyable, even when they win, because it's just, you know, frenetic. But, you know, the nice thing about watching the rerun, right, is you're seeing the trials and the troubles, but you're able to look ahead and you see the victory. Well, James is trying to get you and I to that place through the eyes of God. So let's look at just a few things here. The first thing is, is real maturity. Now, I don't know if you've seen or noticed this. I think you have, but we have the love of the look of maturity. Distressed furniture, jeans with rips in them, you know, uh, guitars that can be made to look like you were on the road for a long time. We like the look of maturity. It's getting there that ain't so much fun, right? It's going through what you got to get through. We will vacation sometimes up in Vermont. And one of the places we like to go to eat is Simon Pierce. Now, that's a, it's not only a great restaurant, but, you know, famous glass maker. Anybody ever heard of Simon Pierce? Well, maybe he's not so famous. But uh, he really is. If you knew about glass, you'd know that this is serious business I'm talking about here. Anyway, so Simon Pierce. And uh, underneath the restaurant is their glass-making place. And you go down there. And it's really something, you know. You see, they got this thing, and they, they sit there, and, you know, they apply the flame to it. And then over time, they mold it. It becomes beautiful. But here's the thing. Without the flame and without the shaping, it's not going to happen. Now, the same thing is happening with us. True maturity happens as God shapes us with suffering hardship. That's what he does. James says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness must have its full effect that you would be perfect and complete. Perfection. Peter says it this way. 
In this you rejoice, though for now, for just a little while, I know it seems long, but it's a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by lots of trials, your sad life is hard, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, might be shown, tested by fire. And so it's this real maturity that God wants, not fake maturity. He wants you to be someone that is substantial. Someone that is weighty, like the tree in, in uh, Psalm 1 that can sit there when, things, when the weather's changing and it, it's able to bear fruit in and out of season. God wants you to be able to weather the troubles of life that way. And the second thing that we see here, the vision he gives us to move forward is this really beautiful picture of first fruits. Now, you know, if you know the Old Testament at all, it was this idea of sacrifice where God said, I want you to bring your first fruits. That meant your first and your best. Bring your first and your best to me. Why was God doing that? Well, one, he was trying to lift the hearts of his people that they would be able to prize who he was But James says there's something else here. He says that you are a kind of first fruits. That means that God's people are his first and his best. When we are going through trial in life, we have the exact opposite message. When you're going through tough time, what you tend to think is, I am the least, and I am the least important, and this is the worst. And the Lord speaks a word and says, I discipline those that I love. I shape with fire those that I care to be beautiful. That's why I do this. I have a purpose. The enemy of our souls will tell us otherwise. And then lastly, he gives us a vision, not just of real maturity, and the idea of being God's first and best precious and valued, but an idea of lasting glory. He talks about a crown of righteousness. Now, crown or trophy, right? I mean, in professional sports, in any sort of sport, I mean, the trophy is deified, like the Stanley Cup, right? I was going by one of these shops, and it said, you know, caps, it was matchbook up at Chinatown. Caps, you know, win another Stanley. Now, my brother works for um, a company in Pittsburgh that actually does the embroidering of the Penguins' uniforms. And when the Penguins win the Stanley Cup, that shop gets the cup there for a whole day. (laughs) I mean, my thought was... And I know right now you have no sympathy for penguins getting the cup. But my point is whether it be washing, you know, it's this like thing that people want to touch. They lift it up. We love that, right? You probably have some trophies at home. I bet you have a few things in your drawer from like fifth or sixth grade that you can pull out and go, I was good. You know, no matter what, I was good. But this is the beautiful thing. It doesn't say here. Because when it talks about righteousness and life, it's talking about eternal life and being righteous, it's not saying you'll get the crown as much as it's saying you will be the crown. 
you will be the trophy. You'll be a trophy of God's grace. And so this is what the Lord is doing as you trudge through the difficulty. So you imagine in heaven's eyes here yourself gleaming with maturity and moral beauty. You find yourself set apart as God's first and best. And you find yourself lasting through eternity bearing this beautiful righteousness. This is God's intent for you and I, and this is why we can eke out a little bit of joy. A little bit of joy, even when it's hard. So let's pray that God helps us to do that. Thank you, Father, for your vision, for your heavenly wisdom. I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters this week. I pray as we walk through the week, even tomorrow, and we face small trials and big trials, and even those that begin to turn into temptation, that you would help us to have joy. In Christ's name, amen.